I didn't sleep all night. I just lay on my back, staring up into the blackness, and every time I started to drift off, I heard the ringing sound again. Iron, striking iron. I felt the horrible shudder of the ground under my feet as that cross was finally lifted to vertical and dropped into place, and I was awake again. Long before dawn this morning, the others started arriving, one by one. I would hear a quiet tap at the door. I would get up to ask who it was. I would hear a gruff or impatient response, and then I'd open the door. Each one would look into my eyes at first, and then quickly look away and slip past me. Some of them dropped onto the floor, some leaned up against a wall, some slumped in a chair at a table, one curled himself up in the corner. I hadn't asked them to come, but but they all came. No one spoke what was there to say. Everything was gone. He was gone. I guess they all just felt the need to be together. Peter was the last to arrive. He looked terrible, but he he didn't look away. He stared at me, and, and I stared back at him. Then he turned his head, and he scanned the shadowy room. His gaze passed over each solitary figure. I opened my mouth to say... I don't know, something. And and then I jumped as loud pounding suddenly shook the door beside me and I froze. My breath choked in my throat. Had they come to arrest us? Then I heard a voice, a woman's voice. I opened the door a crack and I looked out. It, It was Mary. Her eyes were wide. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him, she said. I felt Peter's hand grip my arm, and I looked at him, and then we were outside running. We ran together through that gray mist that's just before dawn, and and my mind raced. Had Caiaphas stolen the body? Was it the Romans, or, or could it possibly be? I glanced at Peter running beside me, and, and then I sprinted ahead. And as I raced through the streets, I thought of all the things he'd said to us. He told us who he was, why he had come. I could hear his voice in my head. I I could see his eyes as he'd looked down at me from the cross, as he'd put his mother into my care. And then we were there. It was true that the tomb was standing open. The the stone was gone. I stopped short at that, that jagged doorway. I leaned my hands on my knees I dropped my head and gulped for air, and and then a shaft of sunlight fell across the opening of the tomb. I raised my head and looked inside. It was empty. I dropped onto my haunches and stared, and, and the burial clothes were in two neat piles on the slab. There was no body. I felt a gust of air, and and Peter burst past me, and he stopped inside the cave, and he looked at the empty slab. Then then he turned his head and looked back at me, and, and I stood, and I followed him inside. It was all true. 
everything he, he said to us was true. And I must have said it out loud because Peter turned to me fully and said, I thought you of all people knew that. Yeah, yes, I did. I, I knew. I knew that he was the Messiah. I knew that he was the Son of God. I knew. But this morning, standing with Peter inside that cold, dank tomb, this morning I believed. The disciples have come to the tomb uncertain about exactly what they will find, wondering whether Mary's words are true. There is a sense of confusion, uncertainty, fear. They look in and and they see the grave clothes lying there and Jesus is gone. I don't know how long it takes takes it to register, but at some point, as John tells us, they believe. It it is an awesome thing for them to say, to look into that tomb and and to say, we believe. What intrigues me about John's account of this is not that they look in and they believe, but the the next thing John says in verse 9. He says, they believed, but they still didn't understand that Jesus had to rise from the dead. As the scriptures declared. There is something about their belief that isn't quite complete. It's not full. It's not total. There are some things that they have yet to grasp. They don't quite understand. They don't quite understand how imperative the resurrection is. Theologian Michael Green says, without the resurrection, there is no Christianity at all. Martin Luther said that the gospel doesn't explain the resurrection. The resurrection explains why we have the gospels. And Paul writes, if if we don't believe in the resurrection, if the resurrection is not true, then everything we preach, everything we say is worthless, useless, empty. It's nothing. And eventually the disciples get it. Eventually they begin to grasp the deeper things of what it means for Christ to be alive. And when they grasp those things, then life becomes different. Everything takes on meaning that had no meaning before. And and I think their struggle is often our struggle. Now, John loves this phrase that when he says Jesus had to rise from the dead, that phrase had to, he uses a number of times in his gospel. One of them is in chapter 4, where Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem, and, and Jesus says it's time to go back to Galilee. And in order to get there in a straight line, you have to go through Samaria. And Samaria is, is and, and Israel are, uh, they, they dislike each other greatly. There's long cultural history between these two people groups. And, and Jews would often walk all the, way around Samaria, all the way around Samaria in order to get to Galilee because they didn't want to walk through that place, even though it cost them lots more time. 
And Jesus says to his disciples, I have to go through Samaria. And out of that, he meets the woman at the well. But I think even more than that, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to to continue these racial biases that have become so cultural for all of you. We're going to put an end to that. I have to go through Samaria. There is an urgency about Jesus going through Samaria. There is a vitality. There is a a centricity to everything that he means for him to come. And he has to walk through Samaria. He's not going to go around. It is imperative that he do this. And this phrase that he had to do something. He talks later in, in John chapter 9 about while it's still day, I have to do the work of my father. There is again that sense of urgency, that sense of, of necessity, the imperative nature of why he is there and what he's done come to do. And when John says they didn't understand that Jesus had to rise from the dead, he is talking about this imperative centrality to the resurrection. The necessity, the importance the resurrection means to everything that it means to be a follower of Christ. See, without the resurrection, the cross is empty. And it takes a while for the disciples to see that. It takes a while for us to grasp that. As awesome as the cross is, as awesome uh, as it is for God to come and to display this greatest expression of his love for us, it is empty And meaningless without the resurrection. It's just another loving act that ends in death without the resurrection. There are lots of people through history who have loved at least as much as they know how and have died. And that's the end. But the resurrection changes all of that. Without the resurrection, death is stronger than life. And hate is stronger than love. Despair is stronger than hope. Only in the resurrection does the cross have meaning. And when the disciples grasp that, it changes their witness, it changes their lives. Of course, if, if the cross is meaningful because of the resurrection, that means that God's strategy works. The resurrection tells us that God's counterintuitive, radical strategy really works. That Jesus comes and empties himself and gives himself to death. It works. Because death is turned into life. And that's why you and I need to embrace that same strategy. Because it works. It is God's strategy. When Jesus hangs on the cross, it looks like everything is lost. It looks like losing. And you know, when we follow the way of God's kingdom in this world, when we follow the way of weakness and surrender and sacrifice and compassion and selflessness, quite frankly, it often looks and feels like we're losing. Because All the rest of the world says, you get things done, you influence things by power and might. By exerting strength. And Christ comes along and says, 
The world will be changed by surrender and sacrifice and death. Take up your cross and follow me. Give everything you are, even your life to me. And in our culture, it looks like losing. It always does. But we know it's not because the grave is empty. Because the hope that is ours in Christ is stronger than the despair of what looks like losing. And love, the love of God does indeed win. And power over is less influential for God than power under. And everything about the strategy of God takes on meaning and significance because the tomb is empty. I think it's hard for us to to grab hold of that strategy because we so often forget what the empty tomb means. When we are wrestling to surrender and to sacrifice, I think we can probably trace it back most of the time to, to a forgetfulness about the empty tomb. We forget that, that giving our lives is not the end. That God is, has won in Christ. And when we embrace the strategy of God, when we embrace the resurrection of Christ, we begin to understand that what feels like losing is actually, truly, ultimately living. And because the tomb is empty, we can live the way we were created to live, even when we sacrifice and we give of ourselves and what feels like losing. It's the empty tomb that gives joy when we feel despair. It's the empty tomb that that fills us with peace when everything around us feels like chaos. In the empty tomb, we discover that in Christ, we can actually be who we were created to be. Creatures loved by God in relationship with God. I will never forget reading for the first time something in in one of the books of Craig Barnes. Craig was the pastor at the time of the National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. He's now president-elect of Princeton Seminary. And he said that when he was in seminary, he had a professor who said to them, you should wake up every morning in prayer giving thanks to God that you are unnecessary. And he said, we all looked at each other and looked at him and said, wait a second, that can't be right. I mean, yeah, we know that eventually people might re- will probably replace us. And eventually people are going to come along and they can do things better than we can. But surely we're necessary. And he said their old professor would say to them, no, no, no. You're too important to be necessary. You're so important, you deserve to be loved. Not necessary. If it's all about being necessary, then when we are no longer necessary, we have no value. We have no worth. 
And what if we're people who, who don't seem to be able to contribute much to society, that it's hard for us to think of ways in which we're necessary? What kind of value do we have then? And what about children? We're too important to God to be necessary. We were created to be loved. God didn't create us because he needed us. He created us because he wanted us. And as we gaze into the empty tomb, the reality of the love of God for us and the relationship that God desires for us comes to life. Because even when life feels like it's falling apart, even when it feels like the pain that we experience in this world is crushing us, God loves us. And whether we can accomplish anything in this world based on the values of our society or not, God loves us. And he is for us. As I said Thursday night, Brendan Brendan Manning tells of being on a retreat. And he said that in the middle of this time of solitude, it's as though he heard God say to him, you have no idea how much I love you. You have no idea how much I love you. That's why I created you. And you know, all of that would just simply be words without the empty tomb. Because the tomb is empty, we know that the love of God is greater and stronger than any enemy, any foe, any opposition, any pain, any feelings of despair. The love of God cannot be stopped because Christ has conquered. And because the tomb is empty, we begin to understand what it means to live as we were created to be. Loved, valued, important, significant, to live with joy and peace because Christ has conquered. Ultimately, I think that understanding the the empty tomb, understanding the resurrection of Christ comes back to, to seeing God and believing that God is who he says he is. Without, without the empty tomb, quite frankly, God is not who he says he is. John says that they didn't understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. I think that if they were really in tune to the scriptures, the resurrection of Christ, they would have seen it as the most natural thing in the world to ever happen. We look back into the Old Testament and God said, God, the scriptures tell us that God brought his people out of Egypt and God parted the Red Sea and God protected them and fed them in the wilderness and God destroyed the city of Jericho and opened up the land of Canaan for them and settled them in the land. And God did miracle after miracle and sent prophet after prophet. And when, they, when their sin reached its point, he sent them into exile, but then he brought them back. And, God, and the scriptures tell us God did all of this. 
But if there is an enemy of God that is stronger than he is, if God cannot conquer the greatest enemy, death, then everything the scripture tells us about God is a lie. Because the enemy of God would never allowed him to have allowed him to rescue his people and part the seas and establish them in the land and bless their lives. And if anything can prevent God from doing what he says he's going to do, then he is not the almighty God. And if Jesus is not raised, then God is simply not who he says he is. But because the tomb is empty, we know that God is the Almighty One. Because the tomb is empty, nothing can stop God from doing everything He says. And everything that Scripture tells us about God, about who He is and what He's done, is true. Because He has conquered our greatest enemy, death. And that ought to change how we live, how we think who we are. A hundred years ago, Nietzsche said to a group of Christians, you make me sick. You know, Nietzsche, this famous atheist, said to them, you make me sick. And they said to him, why? He said, because you make all these claims about, about following the risen Christ, but you are just as fearful and anxious and confused and adrift in this, in this alien environment as I am. He said, I'm allowed to be that way because I don't believe. But you tell me you, you worship a risen Savior. And I don't see it. I don't see it in your faces. I don't see it in your lives. I don't see it. And if we believe that Christ is risen, it ought to change how we live, how we think, what we do. You know, probably most of you realize that, that we, are, we are in the middle in the, uh, of the sports season of the college basketball tournaments. People call it March Madness, and it is maddening sometimes. It, it intrigues me how many people get involved in, in, in these tournaments who have, at other times of the year, absolutely no interest in sports, much less college basketball. I read the other day that uh, like a, a billion and a half dollars in work hours are lost by people watching games on their computer, talking about brackets, doing all of these things during this tournament. Over six and a half million people submitted brackets just on ESPN's website alone. And that'll just get all the other websites to do these things. And I've been talking to people who I know have absolutely no interest in sports but get intrigued by filling out a bracket. Now, it might be because they like the name of the team mascot, but they're filling out a bracket in any way. For us, our favorite days of the tournament are the first two days. Well, I guess there are a couple games ahead of that, but the, 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 for Thursday and Friday. On Thursday, there are 16 games played. Start at noon, end after midnight. And it's just game after game after game after game. Quite frankly, by the time you get to about 7 o'clock, your eyes are kind of glassed over. And you had to take a break for a little bit. But we love those days. Love watching. They do the same thing on Friday. 
One of the reasons people like watching those first couple of days is because there is always, there's always the temptation, there's always the sense that maybe an underdog can get an upset. And you hear people talk about that all the time. That, you know, I only watch because I'm just hoping that a 15 seed will beat a 2. I'm just hoping that, that this little team from Florida Gulf Coast can beat this big powerhouse team. A few years ago, we were up in Buffalo at the tournament. And in one of the games, Virginia Commonwealth University was playing Duke. I'd never even heard of Virginia Commonwealth University before. But Duke, this basketball powerhouse. And this was a crowd in Buffalo where, you know, there were a few hundred people from VCU, probably uh, maybe a thousand people or so that were wearing the blue of Duke. Everybody else was just sort of neutral. But as this game kept going on and it stayed close, the crowd started getting into it and they started rooting for VCU. And, and, the, and the electricity in the building started to grow as you got down to the last few minutes and the game was one or two points. And when Eric Maynard hit a shot to win the game for VCU, that place just erupted. And people stood around and cheered and talked for five, ten minutes. I mean, you would have thought this game was taking place on the VCU campus in Richmond. You would have thought everybody there was a VCU alumni. Alumnus, you know, they, everybody there was, was rooting, cheering for this team that they'd never even heard of before because they were the underdog. I want to tell you something today. Easter is not March Madness. You know, Easter is not that one in a hundred chance when the underdog rose from the grave when 99 times out of 100, it could never have happened. Easter is the celebration of the almighty God who rules all, conquers all, and for whom conquering death is another day in his authority of the world. There's, there was no question that Jesus might or might not rise from the grave. The Almighty God is more powerful than death every time. And the Almighty God can bring hope in our despair every time. And the Almighty God can turn losing, sacrifice, selflessness into winning and grace, and influence, and significance. As the disciples stand before the empty tomb, I'm not sure they quite understand everything that's going on, but they do. And the question facing all of us is, do we? Do we live like it? in the decisions we make, in the attitudes, in the way we, we live our lives, does it look as though we believe and understand that the tomb is empty and Christ is risen and he's one? Heavenly Father, 
we pray that you will fill our lives, our hearts, our spirits with the truth and the reality of the empty tomb. Forgive us, Father, when we get so wrapped up in this world. We forget that you have conquered and you have won and you are life and everything about it. Whatever we are facing today, whatever struggles, whatever pain, whatever heartache, whatever disappointment, fill us with the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ who had to rise from the dead. And we pray this through Christ.